This is the podcast about transatlantic business by MCM Germany. The Clue. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of The Clue. My name is Katharina Luise Kittler, and I'm the head of communications and government relations at MCM Germany. I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Adam Posen to The Clue today. Hello. Hello, Frau Kittler. It's good to be back with MCM Germany. Great. So we are only a few weeks away from the presidential election in the US and we already took a closer look at the election campaigns of both the Democrats and the Republicans in our last episode. And today we want to analyze the upcoming elections through an economic lens. So we invited Dr. Adam Posen, president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics to our podcast today. Before we dive right into the discussion, let me first introduce Dr. Posen to you. Adam Posen has been president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics since 2013. In the course of his career, he's, his research focused on public policy regarding monetary and fiscal policies in the G20, the challenges of European integration since the introduction of the Euro, US-China economic relations, and many, many more. He was one of the first economists who addressed the political foundations of the central bank independence and who analyzed Japan as a failure of macroeconomic policy. During Dr. Adam Posen's presidency, the Peterson Institute has gained recognition worldwide as the leading independent think tank in international economics. So I'm very honored to welcome you today, Dr. Posen, and I'm looking forward to an interesting discussion with you. Well, thank you. And I should just mention your biography of me was long and generous, but I should note that I started my career very much as a specialist on Germany and transatlantic economic relations. I was a Bosch a stipendia at the Robert Bosch Stiftung. I was a Bosch fellow in Germany in 92 and 93. And I was a fellow at the American Academy in Berlin uh, in 2001 and spent a lot of years back and forth active with Germany. So it's good to be talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much. And that's so good to have you on the clue today with all your expertise and experience in transatlantic relations. So um, as I just said, we're just a few weeks away from the presidential elections and maybe we could start um, our discussion with talking about the election campaign. In August, both President Trump and Joe Biden were nominated as the candidates for the presidency by their respective parties. And compared to previous election campaigns, the current one shows new styles of communication and a different rhetoric. And the Democratic and Republican campaign also differ in terms of economic policy. So in, in your opinion, and um, how would you analyze um, how the Republican and Democratic campaigns differ from each other in terms of transatlantic relations and international economics? Well. Let me start by saying Peterson Institute and I in that role are nonpartisan, but that means we, we go where the facts take us. And one has to be honest about the facts in this case. Uh, Vice President, former Vice President Biden is running an entirely normal mainstream campaign. Obviously COVID shut down the pageantry of the convention, but he's a big tent party. He is 
got mainstream and slightly left of advisors on economics both. He's got experienced people advising him and in potentially roles. He's working through the normal party. He's playing by the electoral rules. President Trump and the Republican Party's campaign is unprecedented in the last 125 years of American history. If you go back to some of the nasty um, politics of the 19th century, there are examples, but his outright emphasis on racial and racist appeals to a particular group, his disregard for law and disclosure and anti-corruption measures, including in regard to the election, as exemplified by his speech making, encouraging people to vote twice the other day. Um, and the way that the party in the Republican Party has basically issued no platform. They have said, we'll just continue doing whatever President Trump wants. And that's not an exaggeration. They, they consciously chose not to issue a detailed policy platform. And finally, that there is increasing evidence, or rather mounting evidence, because we already had some, that the a number of Republican operatives with support from President Trump are trying to disenfranchise Black voters, Democratic voters. Um, this is not a normal election. Um, they're very different. So in terms of prospects, uh, Trump basically wins if through the electoral college, he gets the right number of states. So he just has to win the election in particular states. There are very few swing voters. Um, they are mostly white suburban women who voted overwhelmingly for Trump in 2016, but then swung to the Democrats in the congressional races of 2018. So it comes down to how much persuasion and intimidation the Trump campaign can do in Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, a few other states, Pennsylvania, and what happens with those. So do they keep black people from voting and how persuasive are they to white suburban women? On the economic policy, which I know is what you most concerned about and should be, um, there it's very clear where the differences are. The President Trump has pursued an extremely aggressive form of economic nationalism, basically anti-trade, obviously very conflictual with Europe as well as with China and, and even our NAFTA partners, um, very arbitrary provisions of subsidies and privileges to particular companies and attacking particular companies, huge amounts of deregulation, extreme in the energy and environmental sector, a uh, reversal of healthcare moves made under Obama to extend the extent of healthcare, reducing enforcement of labor rules and regulations along with environmental regulations. And this has had the result of continuing to shift uh, the share of income in the economy to capital, um, which is a long-term trend that goes back to the 80s in the US. And I know this has been much discussed in the German public as well as how much this has happened in Germany and elsewhere, as well as the US. So it's not all Trump, just to be clear. Uh, finally, he, he obviously pushed through with congressional support a huge set of tax cuts, particularly on the corporate and high earner side at the end of 2017. And were he to be reelected, um, he would probably try to increase the set of tax cuts. Um, Biden is got a few things that are more left-wing than pat recent past uh, Clinton-Obama type policies, particularly on trying to strengthen unions and labor rights, uh, 
particularly on being more aggressive on green policies. As always is the case, Katarina, which I know your audience knows, what counts as left in the US seems very minor uh, in that direction compared to German or most European policies. So when we talk about uh, environmental changes in the US, it means direct reversals of some of the rules on fracking and some of the subsidies to dirty coal. But it's not going to be overnight, we're going to have a real carbon price in the US. Similarly, when Biden talks about helping unions, it's going to be things like minimum wage, helping them get the right to organize in various large companies, uh, enforcing the rules better that are already on the books. It's not going to be about Mitbestimmung or, or getting large scale unionization like we have in Germany. Yeah, as you just said, this, this is not a normal election and um, our members have been preparing for the outcome of the election since months and their business models as transatlantic companies are affected by political events. So in your view, how can companies on both sides of the Atlantic prepare for the next administration? It is difficult. Um, and what is particularly difficult is I think it is going to be much more um, company specific than it has been at times in the past. I mean, it, it are always individual companies in their sectors, in their expertise and their markets have differing interests. But uh, there has also been a general tendency about transatlantic relations, pro-growth or not, the cycle. And those factors, I think, are going to be relatively small. The, the, one of the sad things about the American political system is that the president, whoever is president, has an enormous amount of executive power to change regulations, change supervision and implementation of regulations. It went through just a stroke of the pen. Congress is needed for international treaties and for changes to the tax code. But anything that doesn't involve large changes in spending else, the president can almost do on their own, uh, as long as Congress doesn't push back. And so you could see a complete 180 if Biden gets in, a complete turnaround on labor regulations, environmental regulations, to some degree on health less so on financial services, because despite people like Senator Elizabeth Warren and others who are very concerned about financial services, the, the specificity and, and recentness of the Dodd-Frank bill and other legislation out of Congress gives actually the president less space to uh, manipulate those issues the way that the president can on some other issues. So I think it's going to matter a lot. Are you dependent on immigrants for labor? Do you have a low wage or a high wage workforce? Do you have an exposure to carbon intensive energy sources or not? How trade exposed are you? Um, how much of your trade is with other democracies and production and market versus with China? Um, these are all factors that are going to matter pretty case by case. All that said, and for all my statements of trying to be honest about the reality of President Trump, I want to stress that for some of the issues that AmCham Germany people are concerned about, the difference Trump to Biden may be less because of two factors. First is the suspicion and anger of the American officialdom against China at the moment is bipartisan. It goes across the Democrats, it goes across the Republicans, 
may be justified, but it's very strong. And in fact, you can see in the campaign that Biden, like Trump, is going to keep trying to paint the other one as soft on China. So continued pressure on American companies, German companies to insulate their technology with China, to quote unquote, stand up against China, to fall in line when the US government intervenes on sanctions or in other ways on Chinese activities, that is not going to change under Biden. The second thing is that Biden and Trump both have had very confused messaging and no clear direction on international taxation and in particular digital taxation. And as you and your members know, there's a lot of dispute over digital taxes between the US and EU and with particular member states in the EU, less so Germany. Um, and real ambivalence in both the Republicans and the Democrats with regard to the big US tech companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, etc. You know, on the one hand, they are worried they are too powerful and there may need to be antitrust and certainly they should be paying more taxes to the US. They believe on, both parties believe on their profits abroad. At the same time, they worry, both parties worry about American national champions being supplanted by European or Chinese rivals or being unfairly victimized by European taxes. And I don't think those issues have been resolved in either party. So there's going to be ongoing uncertainty about that. So the, the topic of today's episode is transatlantic economy at the crossroad and the relationship between the US and Europe faces many, many challenges during these special times. In your opinion, what has changed most in the transatlantic relationship and is it still successful from an economic perspective? I think it's unquestionably still successful, but it's unquestionably less good than and less beneficial relationship than it was of several years ago. Again, I, I while President Trump has made this unnecessarily bad because of the conflicts um, in both foreign policy and international commerce, I think there are underlying forces that the Democrats in, in the second term of Obama were already pushing on as well. Um, the, the sense, I think justifiably, that Germany did not hold up its end of the bargain in terms of demand management vis-a-vis -vis the rest of Euro area and vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world in the last financial crisis is very real and still felt, even though obviously the recent German policy declarations in the Euro area have made a big difference. I think there's also a very strong suspicion and worry about whether it's Nord Stream with Russia or the sales of Audi, Airbus, Falve, and other products from Siemens like and the like in Germany, excuse me, in China at the expense of US, whether uh, Germany is free riding in some sense on US conflict with China. Of course, the Germans can rightfully say, but we didn't ask for this conflict with China, you're making it happen. But these are long-term measures. And when you go back to the efforts to create a transatlantic, the TTIP, which followed the TAFTA negotiations uh, under then USTR Froman and the second term of Obama, those did not go very well either. There are issues about GMOs, there are issues 
about the digital giants. There are issues about coming down the pike, as I indicated, on climate. Europe and Germany in particular are showing real leadership on climate in a good way. Um, the US, even under Biden, I fear, will be a very great laggard. And um, so there's not going to be trade conflict there. So all that is in the, in the making. Um, all that is still there. This is not a great relationship. It is a necessary relationship. It beats the alternatives of more conflict, but there are definitely conflicts there. You already touched on that um, topic, TTIP, and a couple of years ago, discussions about a transatlantic free trade agreement were very popular, and it seems that it has somehow disappeared from the agenda of US and European negotiators. So how would you explain this development and how can negotiators on both sides foster a free trade agreement? I don't think there's any hope for it. I think at the moment, I don't mean ever, but for the foreseeable future. And like I said, I think climate change response is just gonna increase the divide. Over time, over a few years, if the European Union and Germany stick to their guns, and do proceed with aggressive carbon pricing and taxing and do proceed potentially with border adjustment taxes and other trade measures against countries that do not pursue climate change. I think that over time that may have a helpful effect on the US and the rest of the world and we'll get back to it. But these are very real barriers to, to there being some kind of free trade agreement. It's also worth remembering Again, going back to the division over the digital world, um, Europe, including Germany, does not have rivals in the space. U.S. does not have sufficient privacy laws and, and regulation. And so there is a fundamental divide there that's going to be very difficult to get around in the next couple of years. Do you think that there are any um, additional measures that the U.S. and Europe could bring forward because, um, I mean, this, this topic is um, very important for our members. We just did a survey among our members asking them about their priorities, policy priorities for the next administration. And number one was a free trade agreement. So it's always very high up on the agenda. Well, I, I find it surprising that your members said that, not because what we hope for from the free trade agreement is wrong, I think it's right, but because I think it's very unrealistic. I mean, why, what one should be looking for, frankly, are more limited agreements, um, mutual recognition in particular regulatory areas, uh, some kind of modus vivendi as the US slowly gets its act together on climate change. Some agreement, not even EU-US, but critically driven by EU and US in the OECD context about international taxation. Some kind of discussions now that we've seen the worst of it with respect to intellectual property and vaccines, trying to get a better regime for dealing with public health and, and recognition of intellectual property. There's a whole bunch of issues, but I, I find it, frankly, very naive, if not quixotic, 
to think that you're going to have a general free trade agreement that somehow pulls all this together rather than focusing on some of the key issues and trying to make progress on those separately. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I also think that we maybe have to shift our focus and um, in the results of the survey, we also saw that healthcare policy and renewable energy and climate policy are also among the top three policy priorities our members see for the next administration. So maybe we just have to um, yeah, shift our focus and concentrate on these issues specifically. I, I think so. And I think healthcare is very interesting. That is going to be one of the biggest differences between Biden and Trump that I think if Biden wins and there's a Democratic Senate majority, which is not for sure, but if Biden wins, it is probably accompanied by that. In fact, it's more likely you get a Democratic Senate than you get a, a Trump loss. Anyway, in that situation, you could see a, a very rapid restoration of Obamacare to status quo ante uh, Trump, and then some very specific proposals in short order based on the terrible performance of the U.S. healthcare system and the injustices in it in recent months under COVID. Um, so I think there could be a lot on healthcare, and I would be interested in learning more from your members, you know, especially in the context of American German relations, how they think that domestic issue plays out. The energy and the renewables question, of course, I, I think is absolutely right. When talking about the transatlantic economy, we always have to include, of course, the broader picture, meaning the development and changes of the global economy. And how far has the global economy been affected by President Trump during the last four years? Well, I, I published an article two and a half years ago now, I think in February 2018 in Foreign Affairs, um, in which I talked about the post-American Uh, global economy. And I, unfortunately, most of what I forecast seems to have happened, which is we've got a corrosion of globalization. It, it's much more uneven, much less rules-based. I mean, there was always exceptions. It was never perfectly functioning markets and U.S. and others impartially settling everything. But we moved in very predictable ways to emerging markets having much less dependable access, being forced to take political ties, be it to China, Russia, or for that matter, EU, US, uh, in getting their investment in, uh, less faith, relatively speaking, in US dollar and US investments, not a huge shift, but a, a meaningful shift, which of course the COVID mishandling has only increased. Um, a decline in overall cross-border foreign direct investment versus what the trend should have been given growth and given the, the opportunities and the low interest rates. Um, this, is, this is not globalization goes away, but that it, it is fraying and that many of the things that go with trade and investment-based globalization like movement of people across borders, human capital, intellectual property informally with them is being sharply impeded. Again, full kudos to Chancellor Merkel and the German people for making a success 
of bringing in refugees. And I wish more people would learn from that example that it can be economically and socially beneficial. It's not a, a selfless charitable act, even though it should be. So I, I think there are a lot of things going wrong in the world economy. And what you're effectively getting is declining property rights. You know, China is getting much more abusive and more intrusive under Xi's recent leadership. U.S. is getting much more arbitrary and intrusive under Trump's leadership. The uh, ability of the WTO and various other international organizations to enforce standards is being horribly undercut, particularly by the U.S. That said, the, maybe the, go the, the golden light in all this is relatively speaking, and all these things are always relative, the EU looks better. Um, it looks better because it's more rule abiding and more hospitable and less politically arbitrary in comparison to the way China and US have gone. And this is showing up in the currency and this is showing up in investment patterns and this is showing up in the attractiveness of universities. Um, and I think it's gonna show up even more strongly in coming years if things go the way they're going. If you would have to write a similar article for um, a magazine, what would be your expectations for the next four years thinking about both scenarios, a Biden administration or another Trump presidency? You know, I, I think, again, the, the positive upside for EU-US relations, in the, if you get Biden instead of Trump, is quite high. Not that we will go back to a very positive era like we had, say, in the 90s or briefly in Obama's first term, but that we would avoid a lot of the unnecessary conflicts. We would get the tariff wars out and threats out of the equation. We would have some serious engagement on the energy and investment and intellectual property issues we spoke about. Um, there would be much less direct political interference. There would still be underlying issues, and one which I meant, which I didn't mention yet, which is critical, is the U.S. government, the Congress, but also a President Biden would still be eager to use unilateral sanctions, particularly leveraging the U.S. role, dollar role in the payment system globally, to try to force changes. There also would be much more alignment presumably, and Biden has spoken about this and his team has spoken about this, between US and EU and one would hope Japan and others vis-a-vis -vis China on economic issues. And that could be quite positive. So there are a number of those changes that are there. Of course, we also um, have to talk about the corona pandemic in this episode because it's impossible to ignore it when discussing transatlantic economy. The US and Germany are handling the corona pandemic differently. Both administrations have different approaches and priorities. The transatlantic partnership is, among other things, a relationship that benefits both parts and both countries can exchange best practices. So. How can they learn from each other during this difficult time? Also from an um, economic perspective, when we think about helping companies through this crisis. Sad to say, but I think almost all the learning has to come from Germany to the U.S. You know, after, after decades of the U.S. 
lecturing or exemplifying or occasionally willfully being sought as a teacher by Germany, um, I think we're very far away from that right now. I was very conscious as a young person in Germany in 92, 93, and then in my subsequent engagements with American Council on Germany, Atlantic Broca, Friedrich Ebert, Stiftung, you know, various organizations, the American Academy of Berlin, on how much deference is too strong, but how much entree American experts had in the German debate. And, and that justifiably, but also as a matter of generational change and, and tastes has basically gone away, I think, in recent years. So I think all the learning has to flow from Germany to the US. The question is whether the US is willing to take it. Um, and this, of course, is seen every day. We're all aware of these charts showing deaths per capita and COVID cases of the US compared to not just Germany, but the rest of Western Europe and East Asia, um, all the advanced economies. And the US is a complete outlier. But the sad thing is also, though, a lot of the learning Again, the, the treatment of migrants and refugees, I think, is a particularly salutary example of Germany specifically doing something the US has not. But um, a lot of the learning is more just about Germany and some other Western European economies are doing what was the reasonable consensus thing that we learned over the last 70 years and the Americans under Trump going away from it. So it's partly about Germany helping America come to its senses. I know it's always um, hard to predict and maybe um, difficult to analyze, but how will the US economy overcome the corona crisis and how will this also influence the success of transatlantic business and the transatlantic relationship in general? I actually, perhaps a bit contrarian, Katrina, I, I actually don't think the recovery or the cyclical side of it um, the conjuncture side of it actually matters that much for transatlantic relations. I think it is at this point much more about specific sectoral issues and about ideological political divides as well as foreign policy. In terms of the U.S. recovery, as I and my colleague at Peterson, Karen Dynan, put out in our forecast in April, you know, the U.S. is going through what I call a reverse checkmark recovery. It goes down very quickly, it comes back fast, but at say half the rate it went down, and then it plateaus. And, and the question of how low is the level at which you plateau versus where you were before uh, in terms of GDP and growth, it depends on how much of the economy needs restructuring, how many of the millions of people who work in small-scale retail, personal services, hospitality, restaurants, tourism, how many of those people, their employers are going to go out of business and reallocate jobs? And then we have the additional factors that if the U.S. basically blows it in terms of tracking and, and tracing and testing, do people withhold consumption as a result of the additional fears? I mean, at some point they get used to whatever the situation is, but do they withhold consumption? and investment on the assumption that things will get better some months down the road through better treatment or vaccines or whatever. So we're in that point now where the U.S. is going to continue coming up fast by normal standards, but not all the way back up to where it was pre-crisis, pre-COVID, 
uh, over the next several quarters. I expect pretty strong growth through the at least a year from now, possibly through the end of 2021. The Fed will stay on hold. Fiscal policy will probably tighten slightly over the next year, but that's not going to be horrible. And the amount of restructuring, how much long-term unemployment and people have to be reallocated remains to be seen. I think people are underestimating how much some of these sectors of tourism and commercial real estate and restaurants and personal services will shrink. Taking a look at the other side of the Atlantic, at Germany, do you think that in the long run investments in Germany will decrease because of the corona pandemic? Could this be something um, which affects the transatlantic economy? I think it's, I think something else is going to affect long-term investments in Germany. I don't think the coronavirus has that much to do with it. Although, as I said a couple ways earlier in our conversation, relatively speaking, Germany and the Euro area are more attractive vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. than they were pre-crisis in part through U.S. errors. So I think there's a small actual boost to investment into Europe and Germany from the coronavirus. What I think works against it, frankly, um, in terms of American multinational investment in Germany is there is, and in Europe, is that there is likely to be some kind of tax code change, whether unilateral in the US or preferably through international agreement that will make profit shifting and um, offshoring of jobs much harder. And I think that may happen under either president. I'm not saying this is a necessarily a good thing. I think there's a lot of benefits, frankly, um, at least to the movement of production abroad, not necessarily of profit shifting. But I think that that is inevitable and that will reduce the attractiveness of investment in Germany. I think the other thing is the China-US economic conflict is likely to remain and perhaps escalate And that will also, in all likelihood, interfere with free movement of ideas and capital and human capital um, for multinational companies. And that will also reduce interest in Germany. It is conceivable I'm wrong. And what happens instead is you, you build up redundant supply chains, redundant production networks, redundant, I shouldn't say redundant in this case, uh, additional production aimed at certain blocks. So you produce in Europe for Europe, you produce in China for China, you produce in North America for North America. In which case the short-term investment in Germany and Europe from the US would rise, but the economic efficiency and returns on this investment would fall. Talking about the rise of China, because you just mentioned it, Could there be something like a joint economic strategy by the United States and Europe to deal with China? Well, as I said earlier, I think that that is one of the hopes for what would happen under a Biden administration. There already has been a lot of intellectual spade work, even under current U.S. trade rep Lighthizer, led in part by Japan and part by the EU, to try to come up with a common approach on subsidies of public subsidies of private companies which is, and government 
owned companies, which is a huge part of the US-China and Europe-China economic conflict. So I think there is some potential for alignment there. Um, I think that arguably the, the initiative on TTIP that was made in Angela Merkel's speech to Davos, what was it, four years ago now, five years ago now? Um, her initial impetus was to try to align EU and US as standard setters in a large market vis-a-vis -vis the, the perceived economic threat from China. So that basic logic is there as well, but it is going to be difficult once you get beyond the public subsidy arguments to get alignment U.S. and China. That's what diplomacy is about. We'll see if they can sustain an alliance. Okay, great. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. Posen, for this interesting conversation today. It was very enlightening talking to you and learning so much from your experience. Thank you and American Chamber of Commerce Germany for having me, Katrina. Thank you so much. So if you, our listeners, want to learn more about MGM Germany, our members, activities, and political positions, please visit our website, mgm.de, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Thanks a lot for tuning in today and talk to you soon.